This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. China has come a long way. In just over 30 years, it has transformed itself from a centrally planned economy to soon becoming the world's largest economy. And that's an incredible feat, considering that there was no capitalist system to support them, nor financial institutions that would help entrepreneurs. Uh, But the Chinese did it their way. So here to talk about how leaders are creating Chinese global companies are the authors of the book, Fortune Makers. They are Wharton professors Mike Usim, Peter Capelli, and Harbor Singh. Welcome. Thank you. So in your book, you talk about how Chinese entrepreneurs forge their own path when it comes to creating, nurturing, and managing their companies. And you call this the China way. What is the China way? And how is it different from how other countries conduct business? Well, Deborah, an early suggestion came as we thought about this topic from a German sociologist named Max Weber many, many years ago as he looked at how capitalism developed in the West. And he made an argument that some of the values in Europe in the 18th century and then their export into the U.S. helped define the way American business and European business goes about doing business. Companies are relatively independently created, focused on delivering value to shareholders. Uh, People have the Protestant ethic of hard work and get the job done. And I think those of us uh, based here in the West understand that pretty well. And as Peter Harbier and I, and now a colleague in China, began to think about that model in the U.S. or in the West more generally, and as we turned to thinking about how businesses run in China, many of Max Weber's ideas about how the American way or the European way uh, operates uh, turn out to be, just simply put, different in China. And thus, we uh, um, gradually, inductively, talking to many, many leaders of non-state-owned enterprise in China, uh, came inductively to the conclusion that there is a distinctive method by which Chinese business leaders, non-state-owned enterprise, get the job done. Uh, They're similar to, but different from what we see in the U.S., in the U.K. We also did a book a couple years ago called The India Way documenting how Indian companies are similar to, in many ways, but also different from those in the U.S., taking that by analog now back to China, the China way, in some respects, no different from what we do here. You need a chief executive, got to have a chief financial officer, got to get people to perform, have to manage the supply chain, have to market. But in other distinctive ways, Chinese companies are run differently. And specifically, I think one of the things we might want to think about um, with respect to them, we did a survey of their priorities. And what we found was that uh, the first priority was setting strategy, and the second one was setting the culture, and the third one was setting the organizational architecture. Whereas U.S. executives, the first priority was investors, then it was external communities, and strategy was way down. So there's kind of an interesting contrast Uh, The other point is really the idea of agility, that just because, as you said, uh, after the opening up of the economy, there's a sense of urgency, and we found that some of these companies are really agile. They they change very fast. And one reason why they change very fast is 
the the hierarchy is very top down so they can orchestrate change quickly so those were some additional points as part of the china way and i think as as mike was was indicating it comes out of chinese culture this difference the way they operate and part of that i think is as harbier was saying very much top down uh, an extreme focus on growth and growing really quickly and some of that i think is the insecurity of being a capitalist in the country and knowing when are you really secure and being bigger is probably better for that they're really good at learning as we'll talk about in a minute they know that they are behind the west they spend a lot of time internally trying to figure out how to learn and get better and as harbier was indicating they they look much like uh entrepreneurial small companies in the US you know a boss who makes most all decisions by largely him himself uh but the difference is they're pretty big companies and they still manage to operate that way and part of that has to do with the culture of the employees who follow orders pretty well still although i think one of the big challenges is they probably are not going to keep following orders as a new generation comes in so some of the differences relate to the culture of the place some of the differences relate to the startup nature of the economy and you start putting these things together each piece is explainable but you put them together and you're seeing something pretty different so in your book you uh say that the jury is still out as to whether the china way is actually sustainable without the proper internal controls do you think that eventually these chinese companies will develop that and what would that look like Well maybe I could just say what the internal controls are what we're talking about there the maybe I think the most distinctive thing about these companies is that within the small circle of you might think of as the operating committee you know maybe 7 or 10 people at the top of the companies there is a lot of loyalty and there's a great deal of trust and there's a belief among those people that the boss will not fire them that if you at least come clean with mistakes and you do it soon you're not going to lose your job. And as a result, there is a belief that they have that there is an extraordinary degree of transparency in there and the executives are not hiding problems and they're not worried about surfacing them. And if that's the case, you don't need all the internal control systems that we layer on US companies, a lot of internal accounting, a lot of bureaucracy that's kind of checking on stuff. So one of the reasons they can move as quickly as Harbier was saying is because they don't have all that. And one of the reasons they can be cheaper is because they don't have all that. So I think one of the questions is as they become bigger, will they be able to maintain that? You can do it with 7 people. Could you do it with 20? Could you do it with 30? Could you do it with managers in the US and managers in China and managers in Japan? Can you keep operating that way? And I think it's going to be extremely difficult to operate that way once you become big and once you spread out. You know to pick up on that and go back to the early years in which businesses are being created back in the 1980s Deng Xiaoping puts forward his great <clears throat> reform opening up at least a few cracks in a otherwise completely state controlled economic set of arrangements the companies that got going way back then by names like Lenovo for example had no roadmap no background no business school no textbooks and thus the early entrepreneurs were like the early global explorers they had no sense of how to start how to get going how to build and then number 2 they often discovered that in the early years without laws for example protecting private property 
as a young entrepreneur, if they were successful, they can, couldn't even be sure that at the end of the day, they were going to be able to hang on to what they had created. That said, and Peter alluded to this along the way, they've created a learning set mentality. We just got to figure out how to do this. Uh, very inductive, let's just look at experience, learn from what works. If it works, let's do it. If it doesn't, let's get rid of it. And they were unburdened by tradition. That was the key point, even if they didn't have an infrastructure to build on, uh, in, a, in a broader sense, no business schools, for example, to recruit people from. And with that now built into the DNA, okay, everybody, we, we know how we are doing things, but if we open up an operation, let's say in the U.S. or Brazil, let's not necessarily do it the way we do it in China. Let's learn how to do it. And for that reason, at least in, in that particular, with that particular driver, the companies are necessarily not necessarily sustainable as we know them, but we think they can sustain themselves because that learning DNA is just part of who they are. And you know, there's a tension between sort of um, when, when the domestic economy stops growing, that's when the tension develops. So it grew for a long time, now the growth rate is lower. There's also the factor cost disadvantage now in China. So now one has to go overseas um, by requirement, not because it's due to ambition and growth. Um, I think we'll see a lot of heterogeneity. We already are. So Lenovo uh, was sort of the poster child of global, uh, a global Chinese company, and they had a very transparent uh, governance structure, which they evolved into. They partly they bought IBM, so they had to do that. Um, they also had, uh, you know, the private equity investors who required that. Uh, Alibaba, you know, registered in New York, so again they had to have a high degree of transparency. But if you take Alibaba's case, to, to Peter's point, they had a group of 30 who were the preferred partners, who were sort of the inner circle. And, and I think lots of people kind of sort of wondering about that, that you have this group of 30 and then you have the rest. And, and how will this govern effectively? So I think, the, 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 to me, there's heterogeneity, but also there will probably be a, a governance structure that will be some kind of hybrid between what they do domestically and what they do for public listing. Well, while we're talking about the challenges that they're facing, this challenge of growth is one. Um, the other big challenge they're facing is, is cultural change inside China, and particularly with the most recent generation of folks who are coming into the workplace, right? And, you know, their parents' generation who came out of very difficult circumstances, often out of the countryside, moving uh, to the cities, and the, the jobs that were offered by these companies were extraordinarily better. The kids who grew up in those cities, like the baby boomers in the U.S., have much higher expectations. And those who were brought up in the one-child family policy with lots of support around them, lots of high expectations, uh, the idea that they will come into the companies and follow orders the way their parents did, I wouldn't bet on that, right? So it's not unlike the challenge the U.S. baby boomers presented to companies in the U.S., except it's way bigger. The cultural gap is huge compared to what we had in the U.S. It's a really interesting point because as we work with companies here, we are hearing everywhere concerns about how do you manage millennials, to put it uh, rather starkly there. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of thinking about that and great concern around it and a lot of hand-wringing on how to solve it. 
But from what Peter has just said, uh, if we have our challenges here, they're even greater in China for reasons just described. Those are all good points. So it seems that global forces are really uh, changing the way Chinese companies are managing their own businesses. How do you see the China way evolving as a result? So I, uh, to me, the first thing is that many of these companies were are sitting still on a lot of cash. Growth opportunities are outside. So you're going to see sort of more foreign investment, uh, maybe also, it's already happening, it's got a new plants, but you may even see acquisitions and so on. And uh, there's a kind of an emergent integration process that the Chinese firms seem to be developing, which is actually quite interesting. Um, and when in our book we feature Geely, um, a Chinese kind of car company started in the late 1990s, which bought Volvo uh, just 14 years later. Um, and uh, they developed a very light touch integration process, such that Volvo really runs things on its own, but they have sort of some emissaries from Geely and they're trying to transfer some technology. So that's working. But you can imagine many situations where even even uh, from stakeholders, there may be resistance, you know, that uh, there's this Chinese company buying our company, they have cash, but uh, how what will happen to the, how will the cultures blend? So I think the important skill they have to build and the learning uh, approach may be perfect there is uh, how to manage foreign operations. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good example of what Mike was saying. I don't think that was their inclination is to have a light touch on these companies. Mm -hmm. And when the... Chinese manufacturers moved to other countries when Hare came to the U.S. to build refrigeration systems. It didn't go particularly well uh, because their way of managing hourly workers was much more heavy-handed than we would see in the U.S. And they learned reasonably quickly, I think, uh, to adapt to that and, and to manage in a different way. But it's a, it's a big challenge for, for companies to do that. And you know, whether they can survive or not with this approach is, a, I, is, we may disagree on this a little bit. It's a big challenge, I think. And whether they'll learn to adapt, big challenge. And once they become big companies and you develop cultures that are hard to change, becomes more difficult. You know, right now, virtually every company we talked about, the founder is still around, right? And that's not going to go on forever either. And when the founders leave, the ability to change directions uh, becomes much more difficult. Right? So I'd say the jury is out. Right? And I think I would add one more element. Almost all the companies that we've just been referring to up until the early decade of this uh, century were almost purely Chinese-focused enterprise. So Lenovo, now the world's biggest maker of PCs, selling throughout the U.S. Many of our listeners or viewers or readers will have a Lenovo desktop or a laptop up until 2004, 99% of Lenovo sales came from within China. Now, it's a big market, and they could grow purely domestically without beginning to hit the ceiling of, on what the market provided. But for the last decade, one of the remarkable elements in watching these companies uh, develop is that they've decided that they've got a pretty good footprint in China. And just like American companies, they really have to get out of their home country. And for the last uh, really 10 or 15 years now, almost all the major non-state-owned private companies have said, look, we're good in China, we, we can be good in Europe and the U.S. And even now, most American consumers 
uh, can't probably name more than one or two brands that they know to be distinctively Chinese. Lenovo is one of those. Uh, but having said that, if you really uh, look under the hood a bit, you will find, if you buy a Volvo these days, that it's actually a, a Chinese-owned auto company. If you buy a small refrigerator named with the plate on it being higher, that is Chinese. Uh, in a couple of years, we're going to be flying Chinese commercial aircraft. It's some building developments now in, from Brooklyn to Los Angeles are Chinese investors in real estate uh, coming in. So in a sense, it's a late chapter, but it's a remarkable now new chapter for Chinese non-state-owned enterprise to go global. And I think early on, you know, uh, when Chinese entrepreneurs were striking out, they didn't have much uh, infrastructure support or regulatory support from the government. Do you feel that that has changed on the part of the Chinese government? Are they more supportive? Are regulations coming along? Well, I say there's a up and down to that. So mm -hmm. in, in the early days, the, the government was hostile to capitalists. And they were hostile to a lot of these companies that were starting up. And it was quite challenging for the companies to do anything. So it wasn't that they didn't have support. They were actually kind of under attack. And then there were, uh, for some companies, uh, opportunities that the government really did kind of give them. Funding through the state-owned enterprises, keeping out uh, foreign competitors to some extent. And the local governments in China are the big story with respect to this, not the central government per se. And in order to generate jobs, uh, the, many of these companies got a lot of breaks. They got free land. They got roads, infrastructure, things to get, to get started. But our sense from inter interviewing these folks now is that uh, in this later stage, once they're up and running, um, they just want to sort of stay away from the government. Uh, they're like U.S. companies, you know, the, I'm here to help, the government says that, and they don't want to have anything to do with them. So they understand it's very important to get along with the government, and they work to do that and to pay attention to what the government wants. Uh, but they're not expecting help from the government, and they don't want to do too much with the government. So I'd say at this point, uh, for the companies that are already up and running, they're probably not getting a lot of help from the government. They're pretty much doing it by themselves now. And in terms of the uh, stock market and, and listing in the stock market, actually the Hong Kong Stock Exchange has very similar uh, transparency requirements as the New York Stock Exchange. So for public listing, they recognize that they have to have a high degree of transparency, follow the globally accepted rules of accounting, and so on. But I did want to mention also that um, in the area of M&A, I think um, there's, there's a lot of variation in terms of their understanding of how capital markets work. Uh, and in that area, again, you'll see a lot of heterogeneity. And by the way, kind of an odd legacy here on this issue of state support or resistance. Uh, it's hard to imagine if you're an entrepreneur in the U.S. surviving if you could not hire more than six people. But at one point, that was the policy in China. Hard to imagine a startup in Silicon Valley that doesn't provide for incentive compensation. But for a while, you could not provide incentive compensation. All those restrictions, of course, are gone. But the effect was to force those who were struggling to get going when Deng Xiaoping opened up this small crack for private enterprise to get going, is those who did it. Think about this as Darwinian. They had to be really feisty determined to get through these incredible points of resistance. And thus, uh, one result of all that is you got people 
Peter said it earlier on, who are still running these enterprises, who still remember the days when everything was arrayed against them. And thus, that's given them a, a kind of a resilience that is unusual in some other uh, countries. That said, to come back and reinforce uh, the point, state-owned enterprise is state-owned enterprise. They are protected unequivocally by the government. Their interests are advanced. Our focus, though, in talking with the people who run Lenovo and Alibaba and so on, is how you operate when you are not officially government-owned. And maybe to sum up the point, which for us was a surprise, or to restate it, Peter said it very well, we thought this may be one of the distinctive elements of operating in China. You've got a head start. The local city is for you. But in fact, for reasons we could go into, the people that are building the Lenovo's or Vanke, one of the big real estate firms that we focused on in China, they really are like hands off or arm's length. And that's partly because while the government can help them, the government that has its own objectives can also harm them. And so with that in mind, they, like American Enterprise, have tried to say, um, in effect said, we're going to do it on our own. And I think that's enabled them when they've come abroad without official U.S. support, for example, to prosper because they've already learned how to do that in China. I say it's not that different than what happened in Korea, right, yeah. where the Korean government had a mm. policy to help mm. their, com their companies uh, export and in Japan before that. Mm. So, you know, it's not, it's not unheard of. It's not unprecedented. It's just I think for the current generation in the U.S., it seems very novel to us that the government would advance, try to advance certain companies. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's been pretty common. And Mike, you mentioned employee compensation. And I was wondering if Chinese companies compensate their employees uh, differently from those of, in American companies. And also maybe uh, corporate governance practices. Are, how different are they? I'm sure they're different. And do they have CEO succession plans? Is that, Or are these mostly family-owned enterprises? And if you're not family members, you still can't rise to the top. Um, mm -hmm. Well, so let me talk about maybe some of the, the succession talent sorts of issues on that, and colleagues could talk about corporate governance. Um, one of the things that was quite surprising is that I don't think we heard uh, from any of the executives or leaders who expected their family to play a role in their companies, that they had moved past that, you know, that they understood these are big, complicated businesses and that they needed professionals, and in many cases they need professionals who would come from outside, and some of them coming from outside China, too. Uh, so I, I think they're not family-dominated, they're not family-run, they're not intending to go in that direction in the future. In terms of the way they manage their talent, manage their people, they're not good at it. And I think they, they kind of know that. Uh, and I think some of it is because it hasn't been a big challenge, right? When you had a workforce that was more or less used to following orders, wasn't that hard uh, to manage them. And in terms of managerial careers, they didn't have any managerial careers, so, th so they didn't figure out how to do this stuff before. So I'd say for the most part they don't have succession, uh, they don't really think long term about how they're going to manage their people, they don't have sophisticated plans about most of these things. Some of the companies have started to pay uh, their top people stock options and leverage compensation, but, but I'd say they're kind of unique in the extent to which that is not the case, that the founders are astonishingly wealthy and the people around them, often the people that help build the company, are not. Are not. So this is not like Silicon Valley companies where if you were in at the beginning of a company like Alibaba or Vanke or something, you would expect to be extraordinarily wealthy now. Mm -hmm. Unless you were the founder, uh, you're not that wealthy. 
So I think governance has multiple dimensions. You know, there's the issue of independent directors versus CEOs and how they set strategy. Then there's the whole issue about the shareholders versus managers and then shareholders versus other stakeholders. So one of the things we see is that these uh, leaders, they seem to view investors quite far down the set of priorities, which is interesting, maybe because they themselves are investors, there's a lot of control they have, but there seems to be less of this analyst pressure that we see in the US, and I think that's an important point. So governance there is different in that sense. Also then directors, and what kind of check and balance do they have? Uh, we have a whole chapter entitled The Big Boss, and the idea is that there's a tremendous amount of authority that senior management has, and that's good and bad, right? I mean, the, the negative side of that is there's, there's no uh, sort of, not as much dialogue as there should be. The quality of discourse is uh, relatively one-sided. Uh, then we have the issue of shareholders versus stakeholders, I think on that, there seems to be variation. I think it's what their sense of responsibility is to society, and some people actually do have a sense of mission. Yeah. But I think the shareholder versus manager, there's a very big difference. And I think we just to follow a couple of things on that. One, one is this belief that many people have, that as soon as they enter Western finance markets, they're going to change. And we heard people saying the same thing about the Indian companies too, and it's not true. Uh, and I think one of the things that we forget in the U.S. companies is that it's not so much the rules of public funding that change the way the companies operate. It's the way they respond to the incentives that are created by that uh, and the culture that is around that. So the Indian companies that got listed in the U.S. didn't seem to change the way they operated at all. And I, my sense is for these companies, it's not going to change them much either. The guy who's in charge, and again, it's almost always a guy, uh, incredibly wealthy. They don't care much about the investors. They don't matter that much. They're not dependent on outside capital. Uh, and if the analysts start screaming about, you know, you're not maximizing profit, so, uh, you know, mm. there aren't really any consequences for them. So I don't think they're going to care much about that. You know, picking out a couple threads of what Harbir and Peter just said, Chinese company ownership is, uh, these are not, these are private companies, of course, still very concentrated in a couple hands. If you take, um, let's take General Motors, or we can take Procter & Gamble, the biggest stockholder probably at most has 2 or 3% of the shares of those companies, and the biggest these days are obviously the major institutions, BlackRock or Vanguard or Fidelity. In China, we've taken a look at the profile there by contrast to here, and the number one stockholder is often not at 3%, but at 30% or 40%. So take that fact and then add in the big boss model that Peter and Harbir have alluded to or described, and you have the making of a board that is there, but maybe not all that influential in the way that American boards become very independent. They're there to monitor management, keep management on the straight and narrow. That said, governance by our monitoring criteria weaker in China. But turning it upside down, some Chinese companies, our favorite example again is Lenovo, but it's evident elsewhere, the, the, the big boss at the top, uh, working with other people in senior management, have they've moved to put really strong people on the board, not to keep an eye on them for monitoring reasons, because they're not going to do much of that, but to have great ideas in the boardroom, and thus the board 
has often become uh, like an advisor, in effect, a strategic advisor, a strategic partner, if you take it uh, pretty far along with top management. And then that gets back to the fundamental question of governance for what? And the most striking, I think, element to the three of us is that in contrast to the West, where shareholder value is the mantra, it's what is the focus, the criterion for success, the consideration of picking a new CEO, it's just not there. So what is there? Well, we've said, and I'll make it, I'll add a couple sentences on it. It really is about not delivering more shareholder, more value to the owners. It is about growing. Maybe to grow now, Peter said this before it gets too late, maybe to grow now because we just want to do a great job, kind of Harbeer's thought along the way, whatever it is, there is a, uh, it's just, it's a different drumbeat. We want to grow, we want to get bigger, we want to de deliver great services and products. You know, just to, to follow uh, on that, I think the other thing that's surprising about these CEOs, these, these founders, right, is that they have, for the most part, I'd say, pretty small social footprint. Um, they're not showing off <laughs> buying huge estates and things. And in the context of living in a communist country, mm -hmm. that's probably not surprising. Um, but they also are not very much involved in civil society. And maybe that's not too surprising either because there's not a lot of civil society in a communist country. You don't see a lot of philanthropy, for example. Um, very little, really. Uh, and again, maybe that is a, a context of the particular culture. And maybe it's a, an age effect of these founders. You know, even in the, the U.S., the Andrew Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and the Ford's and the foundations didn't come until the founders died, or Carnegie a little before that, right? But uh, it came at the end of their careers. So maybe it will happen there. But so far, lots of incredibly rich founders, they don't operate outside their firm the way we think founders operate here. There's no Bill Gates equivalent in China. So uh, what I'll add is, I think this is a very interesting discussion we're having amongst ourselves. What I will add is the goal probably is the name on the door, you know, that we want to be the biggest company in this industry. We want to have the highest prestige. And, and in the U.S., I think people have traveled down that road and realized that, you know, that can come at a price. But I think for them, the name on the door is really important. And the other issue is that, uh, you know, in, in their lifetime, they've seen so much growth, and there still is this sense of urgency and this uh, growth that they never thought they would get at, a, at when they were young. So there's probably a sense of obsession with the, the business and not thinking yeah. beyond that. I think that's very much a part of what we're seeing. That's an interesting point. I mean, maybe they, they think 20% per year is pretty normal. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's what they've seen their whole lives. <laughs> So uh, Wall Street has been criticized for making companies focus too much on short-term profits at the expense, expense of long-term viability and growth. Do you feel that Chinese companies don't have that view, even if they're public, like let's say in a foreign exchange, or do you feel that they're starting to become that way? I don't think they're, they don't have the view. Yep. I don't think they're starting to become that way. Yep. I think they, uh, if we take a step back, are privileged by being insulated from those relatively short-term drumbeats that we have in the U.S. and certainly in Western Europe. And we, we wring our hands a lot about that. We want more long-term strategic thinking, and sometimes hedge funds and short-term traders make that difficult, and that's true. And the Chinese companies, because uh, private companies, because of different ownership structures, are privileged 
not to have that kind of demand. That said, uh, they do have to keep themselves on the straight and narrow. They got to deliver. And with the absence of those incredibly strong short-term show-me-the-money pressures that we have here, they have been able to do what we'd like U.S. companies to more often do, invest with a couple-year horizon, spend a lot of money to get outside of the U.S. for a couple years. Pay, uh, shareholders here are sometimes a little bit impatient with that. Over there, they do have the privilege of not having to manage an impatient crowd that says, what have we got this quarter? You know, in the U.S., we have these debates all the time about what is the purpose of a business and a purpose of a firm. Is it to generate profits for shareholders? Is it uh, that the firm itself has some identity and that's important for the firm itself to continue? I'd say they haven't really had those debates in China. Uh, they've, you know, they've got what they've got, which is people who control the firms and are interested in putting their own stamp on it. And you could see if you're already worth 30 or $40 billion, the idea of you know, maximizing that may be not so important. So I don't think it's a conversation or a discussion or a debate that they've had in China. What's the purpose of these companies yet? And maybe at some point they, that will change. But right now it's kind of accepted that that's the way these companies ought to operate. So growth and profit have gone side by side in this in the much of the 30-year cycle. And I think the question is, will they remain sort of aligned in the future? As long as they're aligned, I think this model works very well. And, you know, it's really interesting as we dwell on this to muse about change going the other way. So a, a topic we've already referenced, are Chinese companies going to become more like Western companies when they get on the world stage? Different way to put the question is to turn it upside down. Are Western companies for reasons we could go into, inclined to take a look at the Chinese companies and say, whoa, maybe we ought to think about some of the things they're doing. And the one area where that's coming to mind at the moment, uh, four or five groups, including the World Economic Forum and the Business Roundtable, uh, National Association of Corporate Directors, uh, a private group in New York, in the last 12 months have put out calls to action to get away from short-term investment pressure to allow us, they wouldn't say it this way, to be more competitive with the big companies coming, say, from China, who can take a long-term view, and maybe thus the West will look a little bit like the East one day. That's that's really interesting. So um, going back to uh, the point that Chinese companies tend to have a top-down approach and senior management holds a lot of power, what would it take to dislodge a founder or a CEO, or is it nearly impossible? Death. <laughs> pretty much it. I, I don't know how you'd force out a founder of one of these companies. Well, as you said, the, in the earlier discussion, the internal controls are not very strong in, in terms of compared to Western. So it's hard to even get that signal, you know, that uh, there's a need for change. Yeah. I suppose um, the government, one thing that's different there is you could imagine the government yeah. pushing people out of those companies. Yeah. You couldn't imagine that happening here, at least in the same way. And weaker boards. So boards here often do force out CEOs, yep, right. but it's a, just a different story over there. Right. So what would make a company, a Chinese company, pivot then if it's going down the wrong path mm -hmm. and the founder wants to keep mm -hmm. going that way? How do you pivot? Yeah, well, uh, nothing, I don't think. But, but again, the, you know, the idea of what is the purpose of a, of a company, if you think it's really the owner's project and the owner wants to go down that direction... Um, that's the direction you want to go. If this was a small business, and we wouldn't probably question that. If the small business wants to not make much money but pursue the vision of the founder, we'd say, so what? Right. 
You know, just to stay on that for a second, <clears throat> it brings up a topic that I know Hart Beer in particular has thought a lot about, and that is what is sometimes the, called the, the market for act, the active market for corporate control. In the U.S., if a company falters, uh, take over experts, hedge funds, other competitors will say, uh, it's like sharks in the water and they smell blood, they'll go after the underperforming company. Not so much in China. I think that's right. So in, in a sense, the two things that might drive change, one is the agility idea, you know, that they are, there's a sense of we have to keep doing well, and maybe that works. But I think you're talking about a case where the founder uh, or the top team somehow misses that. The second thing is the learning idea that, uh, again, they seem to really learn faster than most because they had to. Now the question is, are you still hungry when you're doing that well? You know, so, or I, I think yeah. the other thing you were implying is what if their goal is not necessarily to make a lot of money or what if their goal is no longer necessarily just to grow? What if their goal, for example, is they want to be very nationalistic and they want to stay in China, opportunities elsewhere where they don't want to take them? Um, I don't think there's anything that uh, pushes those companies to change that direction. Right? And China is a huge market, so there's plenty of opportunity. One thing that may need a little bit of improvement on part of Chinese companies seems to be its marketing uh, prowess because even though uh, the whole economy has come a long way and there are many, many companies that have grown extremely fast in the last 30 years, very few companies are household names, uh, maybe Alibaba and Lenovo. Um, how should co Chinese companies change that? How should they approach marketing and, and do they want to? Yeah, or do they need to, right? I mean, if you're if you're not in the retail business, you don't need to, right? And uh, you know, they've been behind the brands uh, so far for most of the uh, business in the United States, so they really haven't needed to. Um, I don't know that I, I see it as a particularly difficult problem. You know, Hire is a actually a German name, right? Uh, and you know, the uh, what what's their can, what's their problem that they've got? You know, will Americans think they're Chinese brands? We don't want to go near those. Um, I'm not sure that Americans, for those retail companies, really know. I don't think they know that Lenovo necessarily is, is Chinese. So I don't know that they've got a particular problem. I don't think it's that hard for them to, to change it. They hire a New York advertising company and poof, off they go, right? So there is, a, I heard a present, actually there was at a conference in, in Beijing, and one of the economists, local economists, mentioned it takes about a generation for a major global brand to, you know, national brand, a global brand to emerge. So from that point of view, these are on pace, right? Uh, but the other thing is there are a lot of local brands in retail, you know, and there is uh, a fascinating thing I learned was that, uh, and Alibaba is kind of an indication of that, that actually on online retail, the Chinese companies are in many ways ahead in terms of, inventory, um, uh, you know, the, the whole idea about real-time inventory systems and those kinds of things. Uh, but I think your point is well taken. I think what you're, the argument you're making is um, maybe the, the, the fashion goods, the global fashion names, you know, the household names, those will take a while. But, but they have a huge population within China with plenty of names. And uh, again, they don't have to. Uh, even market under their own name, right? And what they've been doing in, in the U.S. Uh, and, and, you know, to some extent Indian companies too, is they buy brands that already exist and they operate through those brands, right? And you know, it 
it's taken on a, a new hue in the last uh, year or so, certainly in the U.S., as we think about a brand that, let's say, is a Chinese brand. Mm -hmm. So historically, German engineering was a big plus for many companies, uh, Mercedes, BMW, and so on. So you, you established your own brand and reminded everybody that you're going to have the benefit of German engineering. Or historically, in automaking, uh, we all came to know Japanese automakers as outstanding when it came to high quality and, and low cost, continuous improvement. Uh, these days, whether a nationally branded product is going to be a plus or minus, I think is more up in the air. So imagine this. Uh, we invite you to come to our store to buy this product brought to you from China. And I'm not certain at this moment, given the thinking about uh, uh, global trade and all that, uh, that's going to be a plus or maybe it's, it's going to be a minus in time to come. Back to the other, maybe the other half of that equation, though, uh, companies like Hire, uh, a little bit like Samsung, but also Lenovo, in some respects, they look a lot like the U.S. and how they go about branding. So, like, you can find Samsung names on uh, push carts at airports these days, and Lenovo is there as well. Lenovo is very much. And also Huawei, I think. Uh, of course, an internet infrastructure company, but very much dominant, you know, in in, in the B two B marketplace. Um, so I think there are, uh, it's on pace if you think about evolution of brands. Well, can each of you share a favorite Chinese CEO story or Chinese company story? So I can start. I um, so Jack Ma from Alibaba. I think one of the very interesting things he did was to always keep in mind the Chinese consumer. And uh, so eBay was already very strong in China, and he had ambition to, to sort of build his company. And one of the differentiating factors that allowed them to essentially win against eBay was that they played off the idea that Chinese consumers need to want to verify goods when they buy online, and they want to negotiate if possible. So they created an algorithm in the, in the in software to allow um, consumers to actually inspect goods and created an escrow account, which eBay did not essentially do the same at the same pace because they were using the US model. Mm -hmm. And that was one differentiator that allowed Alibaba to gain on eBay. So it's very interesting. You got one? <laughs> uh, for me, almost a, a prototype or maybe a, a model in which we can see many entrepreneurs uh, by way of um, inference is around the person who, in 1982, working for a state government-owned research lab, Deng has mentioned that we are going to get a little private enterprise going. He put his hand up, and he left um, a very promising career as an engineer doing research on hardware and software in computers at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And in the first week, as he decided just to test the waters, could he build a small business, uh, Lu Chanzi is his name, he had himself and one other employee. They were given the guardhouse that protected the, the driveway as you came into the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And ever since then, every week, at the end of the week, beginning back in 1982, up through 2017 now, uh, Lu, and then another person that he's worked with over many years, because they had no roadmap, no textbook, no business school background, no kind of tradition of how you manage or run anything. 
uh, he would sit down and do a weekly after-action review. Three questions. Okay, guys, we got through a whole week. We're not bankrupt. What do we do right? Where do we blow it this week? And with the answers to those first two questions, let's be better next week. Sort of symptomatic of this learning kind of pathway they've all been on because they had no background. But the great advantage, and this is why I mentioned this particular account, the great advantage of thinking about every day or every week as a new week, no background, no tradition, but a very problem-focused kind of laser-like attention, it's allowed them to be agile. That's the term that Harbir used quite some time ago, to go with the flow, make changes, because there is no tradition. And that's actually one of the great features that has come out of it. And uh, the founder, Lenovo, a pretty good case in point, one employee back in 1982, and today it's the world's largest provider of personal computers. Uh, so let me tell uh, three mm -hmm. anecdotes about three different CEOs, and we'll just roll them into one, all, all quite similar. Um, one mm -hmm. that um, who hires every year a student from Peking University just to read business books for him and summarize them. Uh, and another who says that a quarter of his time is spent reading, and not reading things about the company, but just reading in general. Uh, and a third, which requires all the CEOs, I mean, all the top executives in that operating circle to prepare book reports on most important books that they have read and send them into the CEO. So the idea of the company as kind of a school uh, that actually kind of looks like a, a university is pretty profound. And I think for us, this is a great thing because they really like universities. <laughs> and Peter, after the show, I'm going to call you up and see if I can get the name of the people that will read those books and report on them. I'm yes. going to have to do some hiring. Uh, so my final question is, you know, when foreign companies set up shop in China, to what extent should they adopt the Chinese way of management? Uh, well, I'd say it's extremely difficult to do it. If you don't have a Chinese CEO and you don't have Chinese employees and Chinese management and, and if you have ties back to your home country that impose requirements around you, I think what mm -hmm. we would probably all agree, the point is um, really to understand what your competitors are doing and to, in China and maybe your partners there as well. There are a few things you can learn from China that you probably could adopt in the U.S. I think, you know, for me, the important one would be this question of trust and the the benefits if you really had trust at the top of the organization that uh, could accrue to you. I think uh, the this book can inform people about what is the mode of doing business in China and the history of the evolution of these companies, which I think is really important, including making up their own ideas as they go along. Of course, then there was a lot of, now we have lots of business schools, they're very good there, and so on. But the other thing is, if you think about how companies manage global operations, maybe they can be integrated on technology and so on, but organizationally, it seems that being differentiated or you know allowing different operations, operations in China to operate that in a way that works for them is going to be important. I think interfering or getting a hybrid model or imposing is probably going to be disruptive and may not result in good, good outcomes. And it's a really good question to end on because much of the motivation for us to take on the book, and we did 
75 interviews with people who are out there like Jack Ma building companies like Alibaba is to help people in the West, including ourselves, better appreciate how companies do operate in China and when, how they're going to operate when they're over here. And back to the India way, our earlier book, one thing that we noticed as we did the similar kind of methodology with over 100 Indian CEOs is that Indian top executives are very committed themselves and they carry it into their company about giving back to the community. If there's not a hospital, they'll build a hospital, for example. Now, American companies going into India aren't going to be doing that. But it's really important to know that your competitors are because Indian consumers are going to kind of wonder, well, your competitor, an Indian indigenous company, is helping build roads and provide public health. And it's a bit odd that as an American company, we don't do that over here, that you're not there. So back to China. Uh, two of the accounts that we do reference in the book, and most viewers or listeners are going to know this, uh, refer to the fact that a couple very well-known U.S. companies have had a go of it in China, eBay for one, Uber for another, and they were both defeated by very able competitors. And the competitors, in some respects, simply could outgrow them. So there's a Chinese Uber equivalent. Uber just threw, in its, threw the towel in recently when the competitor was willing to take loss, losses for longer in the interest of just getting big. In the case of eBay, it's up against Alibaba. And Alibaba, in some respects, had a better operating model, but it also had a deeper commitment to building without worrying about quarterly returns. American companies in China have to worry about that. It's who we are. It's how we operate. But it's good to know what you're up against when you're in China. That's partly why we wrote the book. Well, that's all. This is a very fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.